episode 217, Timothy R. Clark, author of The Four Stages of Psychological Safety. Trying to figure out, okay, which, which mistake? I have many to choose from. I have a whole menu. I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes. Because we all make mistakes, but what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth, and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. To learn more about Dr. Clark, his book, his company, and more, look for links in the show notes or go to markraven.com slash mistake217. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to My Favorite Mistake. I'm Mark Raven. My guest today is Dr. Timothy R. Clark. He's an organizational anthropologist. He's the founder and CEO of Leader Factor, which is based in Utah. Um, I'm really excited that he's here. Uh, I love his book. He's the author of five books, including his most recent, The Four Stages of Psychological Safety. Uh, Tim has a PhD in social science from Oxford University. He was a British research scholar. He was a Fulbright scholar at Seoul National University in Korea. So uh, I'm real excited. I've learned so much, Tim, from your book, your podcast, the training class I was able to do last year. Welcome to the podcast. I'm going to try not to be too awkward or starstruck here. Thank you. No, thanks, Mark. I'm I'm delighted to be with you. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. Thank you for that. And um, I'm going to have to remember like I hear your voice a lot when you're doing the podcast with Junior, and I'm going to have to keep reminding myself that I get to interact with you. <laughs> <laughs> hey, just, 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 you know, we're friends, so we're just going to have a conversation. Makes it nice. Sure. Well, thank you for that. So um, I'm going to deviate a little bit, and I told Tim that I was thinking of doing that here. Normally, the first question is about favorite mistakes, and we're going to get to that. But I think it's important maybe to ground the conversation a little bit, Tim, if if you would, if you give your definition of psychological safety, please. Right. Uh, five words, a culture of rewarded vulnerability. That means I'm going to reward your acts of vulnerability, and you're going to reward my acts of vulnerability. And out of that, if we if we do that consistently, then that creates a prevailing norm where we can both model and reward vulnerability. That creates a, an astonishingly powerful environment or culture uh, where we can, we can really um, reach our potential and do work that we otherwise couldn't do. So that's my definition. Yeah, well, thank you for that. And we'll we'll have a chance to talk more, I think, after the favorite mistake story. But maybe just one other quick recap, you know, with the four stages of psychological safety, um, inclusion safety, learner safety, contributor safety, and challenger safety. Um, one thing I try to do on the podcast, and I hope I've done with you, is that level of inclusion safety where you feel uh, accepted and respected. You know, inviting you to the podcast, I think, is an act of welcoming inclusion. But I, I do appreciate, and this is more of a comment than a question, but I want to hear your reaction to it before the favorite mistake question. Mm-hmm. Um, the, 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 the candor that my guests exhibit of, 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 or the vulnerability to share a story about a mistake is something that I, I'm deeply grateful for, not just because it creates content for a podcast, but 
I, I, it's just very generous of people. And I, I can't say it's strictly because I've created a comfortable environment for that, but I mean, what, what are your reactions to, to that? Yeah. My thoughts, Mark, on that, well, it takes me to, I think, what is a, a principle that I see over and over again, and that is that there is a direct correlation and a positive relationship between vulnerability and your ability to learn. So the more vulnerable we can become in, in our conversation, in this dialogue, the more we're going to learn. Mm-hmm. Because we're we're willing to explore, we're willing to dig, we're willing to excavate, we're willing to examine things at a deeper level. We are we're trying to remove the inhibition, the fears, the doubts, and so what does that do? It op- it it allows greater learning. So that's what I would say. Um, where we achieve that, we we tend to have better experiences. So maybe there's an opportunity now to learn from your story and your reflections on it. I'll jump to the the main question then here, Tim. You know the different things you've done. What would you say is your favorite mistake? <laughs> well, you asked me this a few days ago, so I've been reflecting on it, trying to figure out. Oh, okay, which which mistake? I have many to choose from. I have a whole menu. I- but, I've, I've I've learned. I'm sorry, Nero, but yeah, this is not a question you you, you put people on the spot with. <laughs> no, no, I, I know, I know, but I, I tried to be reflective, and I identified a pattern. This is maybe a category of mistake that we we all make, but and I've certainly made it more than once. But it's it's a mistake where I was overtaken by emotion in making a decision. So think about when the way we make decisions, well, typically we bring uh, some data and evidence. We bring some kind of logic, some kind of logic tree to a decision, and and then we make a decision. Now, of course, I I think it was, yeah, it was Daniel Kahneman that said, "We, we are not thinking thinking machines that feel we are feeling machines that think so that helps us understand that the thinking brain and the feeling brain are interconnected not only interconnected you can't pull them apart and so when we make decisions we we have the intellect at work but we also have emotions at work and that interplay is very important and we don't even fully understand how that works but the mistake that I've made more than once is when I allowed the emotions to kind of commandeer or control or overtake the process. And so here's what I did. Mm-hmm. Well, can, can, I can, you give, can you give an example before you talk yeah. about what you did about it? An, an example that kind of illustrates. Yeah. That? So I made this mistake twice. Uh, the first time. So I hired the wrong person. And I, I had, I, I did it because, well, let, let, let me share a statement with you, Mark, that I think mm-hmm. is, is very instructive. This is a statement that has, will always stay with me. It's by Gertrude Himmelfarb. She's an American historian. She passed away three or four years ago, but she said, nothing is as seductive 
as the assurance of success. Mm. You, you got to let that, that sink in. Nothing is as seductive as the assurance of success. So I remember, so I'm going back to the mistake. I hired this individual, this was years ago, to an executive position. And the, the, the evidence wasn't really quite there. But the assurance of success that this person gave me created such a hope and a desire that it would work out. And, and I felt myself, you know, in, 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 in retrospect, I realized I was, uh, I was a victim of confirmation bias. I was telling myself, oh, yeah, this is going to work. So in the absence of the evidence that I really needed on the, on the intellectual side, I let, I let my emotions and my hopes and my aspirations dictate the decision. And I had tremendous buyer's remorse after this because the individual was not able to perform anywhere close to the assurances that they gave. Now, here's the sad part. I did this again. You you think, oh, you know, rookie mistake, okay. But I did do it again. I did it one more time. Uh, and I could kick myself for it because again, the evidence wasn't there, but the assurances were there. The assurances were there, but they were not based on the evidence. And I went with the assurances instead of the evidence. And again, I met with really stinging and bitter unintended consequences that I had to absorb after the mm -hmm. fact. Right. So twice on that, Mark. And I paid a heavy price for that. Yeah. And it took me a while and, and I just wasn't vigilant, alert enough, disciplined mm -hmm. enough. And I made the mistake twice and it, it was a killer. Well, well, I, I mean, I appreciate you sharing that. And you know, I mean, I, you, you know, I mean, people make mistakes like these, you know, um, you know, to think about learning from them and, you know, not, not beating ourselves up for yeah. them. Did, did, in both cases, did you have to come to the realization of, of that person needing to be removed then from yes. the organization? Yeah. Both times. Yeah. Yeah. And even that, even it, it, and, and so then you're faced with um, the sunk cost uh, issue and you're thinking, okay, know what? We'll just invest more. They're going to get there. They're going to get there and you invest more. And at some point you, you just have to cut your losses and move on. But even that is so difficult because you have invested a lot and you're so hopeful that things are going to work. But again, you're not, you you are engaged in some level of self-deception because you're not truly objectively and partially looking at the evidence. You're, you're you, right. Your confirmation bias is still at work and, and you're dismissing the lack of, of solid evidence that this person is performing. And so you're still, you're still kind of, uh, you're not being completely honest with yourself, or at least you're trying to be really hopeful. 
And then you're delaying the inevitable, which is you got to take the person out. Yeah. I mean, it it seems like there's a situation where we either might not want to admit that it was a mistake or we might make a mistake on top of the mistake of trying to stick with the person too long. The other thing, the other side might be true too, where, you know, you, you, you get rid of somebody right away and then you think, well, maybe, maybe that was a mistake. Maybe I should have coached them up or you stuck with it longer. There's, there's no easy answers to decisions like these. We make the best decision you can in the moment. Right. It's true. But you know, what's interesting, Mark is, I mean, I've been managing people for a long time and I can't think of one single example where I would say, oh, we took this person out too early. Mm -hmm. I cannot think of one example, but I can think of plenty where we, where we said, oh, we waited too long. Yeah. You hear that a lot from executives. Yeah. 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 So after a couple of cycles of going through this, what, what did you discover? What did you learn? What, what did you do about it? The old adage, hire slow, fire fast, right? I I have become just uh, much more patient, methodical about hiring and about disciplining myself to focus on the evidence. Now, I don't mean to say that we should be dismissive of gut or instinct or intuition. I'm not saying that at all. Those things are very important. In fact, we don't eat fully understand the interplay of the thinking brain and the feeling brain. We don't understand how the brain works to synthesize, to synthesize information and to draw conclusions sometimes. And so we have to pay attention when we're feeling something we're having a misgiving, we're having a doubt, we're, we're worried about something. We have to pay attention to that. Uh, that intuition, that those instincts are very important. So I'm not, I'm not at all uh, suggesting that we're dismissing that. But what I am saying is, at least for myself, I had to learn to be very careful about uh, allowing myself to be persuaded early based on reassurances, right? Based on um, claims. Uh, You know, I can do this. We can do this. We're going to do this. We can achieve this. Where's the track record? We, We have to see a demonstrated track record. We have to see some significant evidence of what might be possible. So I've, I've, become much more careful about demanding to see the evidence in the track mm-hmm. record. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you sharing the story and and, and the reflections, um, a vulnerable act in, in doing so, you know, to, to, to share, you know, um, to share that with an audience. So, you know, I, I appreciate that. Um, you know, I think, and it, it goes to show you're not alone that sometimes, I mean, many guests on the show, have talked about how they it took a couple of repeats of a mistake mm-hmm. for it to really then start to register and for the awareness to build of okay, I need to start doing something differently. So right, right, you're you're not alone in that with these these difficult decisions that leaders, entrepreneurs, um, leaders like yourself face. Yeah. 
So I, I hope this, I, I, I hope you feel like I'm re- back to terminology, rewarding <laughs> your vulnerability no. and punishing you. Tim, what's wrong with you? Why didn't yeah. you know better? No, no, no. Why didn't you all. learn faster? That's no. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm very happy to share uh, about that because the, what do we look, the, the human mind and the human brain, we're always looking for ways to economize. We're, we're looking for cognitive shortcuts. We're looking for efficiencies. And, and so there in, in that there's a temptation to uh, tell ourselves a soothing story about maybe trying to get somewhere faster to be more efficient. And I have to come back and tell myself again and again and again. And I tell the team this, find the price, pay the price. Don't even think about the concept of a shortcut. Shortcuts don't exist. Find the price, find the price, pay the price. This is this is the only way to to sustainable performance. And it's 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 the only way that we can really uh build ourselves and build others uh for long-term success. So those are some of the yeah. things that I tell myself now. Sure. Yeah. So I think we have, you know, this this great opportunity to take a deeper dive into psychological safety, realizing, you know, for the audience, we're scratching the surface. I highly recommend Tim's book, The Four Stages of Psychological Safety. There is so much free knowledge and education that that you and your team give away, Tim, through podcasts and webinars and YouTube videos. It's all out there for everyone. And I I, I hope they will also buy um, the book. Um, so you know, I want to delve in, you know, there have a few specific questions that that I have from trying to be a student of this, trying to help others learn. And you know, yeah. one, I I'd like to go back and unpack the word vulnerability a little bit, back sure. to your definition of psychological safety as a culture of rewarded vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Um because you know, it's interesting. Like people hear a word and they're like, oh, I know what that word means, but they might be yeah. thinking something different than your definition. So before asking for a definition, like one thing I hear people kind of respond to is that they they hear the word vulnerable and they, and they think, um, oh, that sounds weak. I yeah. don't want to be vulnerable. I don't want to be weak. Or that being vulnerable is like sharing a personal story. Like, let me be vulnerable with you. And they might tell an embarrassing story, but that that's not really the way you explain or define it, right? No, vulnerability is exposure to the risk of harm or loss. That's what it is. So you're, you are deliberately exposing yourself to that risk of harm or loss, but you have to in order to do the things that matter in life. So, for example, here's the premise. Human interaction itself, in all of its in, in, in every aspect is a vulnerable activity. Human interaction is a vulnerable activity. So we're not going to, we're not going to do anything productive without being vulnerable. Turns out that often the more vulnerable you can become, the better that you can do things. For example, you, you, you can't be yourself without being vulnerable. If, for example, if if you don't if it's expensive to be yourself then you won't like if and it's so risky get, right yeah, yeah it's risky 
And, and so you will engage in very predictable behavioral patterns, such as armoring and masking and modulating and code switching. These are the things that humans do when they don't feel interpersonally safe. Uh, so they, they, it's expensive. And so they are an adaptable creatures. They're going to engage in behaviors that will help them with self-preservation, with loss avoidance, which makes sense. So, so back to your original question, what is vulnerability? Deliberately, well, not always deliberately, but, but often deliberately exposing yourself to the, that interpersonal risk. But in doing that, it opens up the possibility of all of these rewards. And we can talk more about what those rewards are. And so if you're not willing to be vulnerable, then you're stuck, right? You're, you're, you're stuck. You're stuck in your personal development. You're stuck in your relationships. You're stuck in your learning. You're stuck in your contribution. You're stuck in your ability to innovate. You're stuck. Sure. But when you, you talk about the role of leaders, and I think earlier you talked about modeling and rewarding vulnerable acts. Um, if someone's new to a team, and we, you know, we think of examples of vulnerable acts, um, asking a question, um, saying, I don't know how to do something, um, mm -hmm. say, I could be wrong, I made a mistake, maybe yeah. th there's a better way. Those are all vulnerable acts in the sense that somebody could ignore you or punish you or attack you for using your voice and for speaking up. And, you know, I think it's interesting when you see somebody come into an organization from surveys that you can mm -hmm. say is generally speaking a relatively psychologically safe environment. And I know there's, there's variation around an average. It doesn't mean it's equally safe for everybody, but when someone's new to a team and they're joining from an organization where they did get yelled at for not knowing something, they got punished for simple human error. Um, like it's, it's just interesting to see or to hear people's reflections. It's not like they can flip a switch and say like, Oh, I'm in a safe space now. I can, I can change my behavior because they've been conditioned Yeah, that speaking up, they, they don't just fear that it's risky. It's been demonstrated that it's mm -hmm. risky. Yeah. They have evidence. And so even if, as you say, even if they move teams and they and they go from one team and they come to your team, they do not, they don't arrive ready to go. They don't arrive ready to be themselves or ready to learn. Because they've come out of punished vulnerability, which to a certain extent is trauma. And so they they bear the impact of that experience. That, that, that experience lingers into the future. And until there's evidence to the contrary that they can see, right, as they do threat detection, that, oh, look, look what everyone else is doing. Look what Mark is doing. He's engaging in these acts of vulnerability and he's being rewarded for doing that. And it registers and it registers and it registers. And you, you build up this, this new evidence that says this, I, it looks like you can do this and not be punished, but actually be rewarded. And, and so then the, so the person has to be re-socialized and, and then amazing things can happen. But if you're the leader, 
then don't assume that people are coming to your team and they're ready to go. Uh, so you, one of the things that I like to say, Mark, is that as the leader, you have the first mover obligation to create the conditions for psychological safety. The leader is responsible for conditions. And, and that, that, uh, re, that responsibility never goes away, nor is it a responsibility that you can delegate or, or even abdicate, even if you wanted to, right? Sure. That's just part, yeah. of your, part of the job. Yeah. So can you explain a little more? The one thing I think is really powerful about this framework that you lay out, it's not enough for leaders to encourage people to speak up or to encourage vulnerability or to say that it's safe. Like, why is it so much more powerful for a leader to lead by example? You know, think of in a workplace where, you know, the CEO is very willing to say, I made a mistake or I've got an idea, but I don't know that it's perfect. So let's go test it and see. Like, yeah. why, why is that, that modeling so much more helpful? Well, first of all, it shows the way. Right. We say in writing, don't tell me, show me. So if someone needs to show us how this is done. We need a model that we can imitate. That's how we learn. We, we learn through imitation, especially behaviorally. So I need someone. So I need to be able to say, oh, look at Mark. Mark is, oh, that's how you do it. So, so that's what it looks like. I, so now I have a model that I can follow, I can imitate. Uh, number two, I need, I need evidence that I can do it and that I won't be punished. So I just, I just, I just need, I need a, a body of evidence that tells me that it's okay, that I won't be punished, that I'll be rewarded for these vulnerable acts. So if the leaders are telling us, Oh, you need to speak up, but they have not created the conditions that would allow us to speak up. They are essentially asking us to muscle through the fear. Yeah. Well, who's going to do that? Yeah. A few outliers mm -hmm. will do that, mm -hmm. but everyone else will not do that. Yeah. And it's not only ineffective, Mark, I would go so far as to say it's disingenuous to even ask if you haven't created those conditions because you're responsible for those conditions as the leader. Mm -hmm. That's your job. And so it, it, I, I, I talk about this in, in, and I call this rhetorical reassurance where right. the leader gets up in front of people and says, hey, we're, we're going to have psychological safety now. <laughs> go ahead and speak up. What, what changed? Yeah. You, you. So you're going to legislate that into, uh, yeah, but with your words, uh, this doesn't work. Right. You know, you can't you can't do this by decree or by fiat. Yeah. It doesn't work that yeah. way. Yeah, right. There's this phrase, and I don't know if I if I got it from you or if, but this idea of like this word providing. You know, I think like if you hear someone say we're going to provide psychological safety, I'm like, well, you can provide donuts yeah. for the meeting. But yeah. psychological safety is not that simple. It's not no. something you buy or install. It's not a project. <laughs> install. I like that. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, it's delicate and it's dynamic. It's perishable. The, the, 
it's and so we don't it's not it's not a project where i got that done let's move on to the next priority this is ongoing this is this requires constant modeling constant reinforcement it, it's it's an eternal process in right. culture right right yeah and you know when we you, you talk about people being brave or courageous or powering through like when in healthcare environments i cringe when i hear discussions around nurses or people speaking up in a power dynamic where they they're not the most powerful person mm-hmm. and uh you know you hear people say things like, well, you, you should speak up. You should you challenge should. that surgeon. It's your professional <laughs> responsibility. And I'm like, that yeah. just does not seem no. helpful or effective. No. To give, it's not even rhetorical reassurance. It's more like a, just a demand. <laughs> right. And, and there's and, so much risk. Yeah. So let's go back to the fact that we we typically work in hierarchies, which means that there are there are power differentials. And when the power distance is large, then what you're asking me to do, if you, if, if you're asking me to challenge someone that's higher in the hierarchy, you're asking me to assume a much greater risk. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the potential liability, the potential exposure and the potential liability for me personally is massive. Furthermore, I'm probably socialized to give deference to the chain of command. That's what we call authority bias. And so think about the obstacles. I've got to overcome the authority bias, the exaggerated deference to the chain of command, the right, the personal exposure and liability, the potential for repercussions, reprisals, I have to overcome all of that. And you're just telling me I should do that. Excuse me. So, so when, how do we get realistic about what it requires for the person that's subordinate to actually engage in that behavior? We have to enable that to happen or it's not going to happen. That's why the flight attendant doesn't challenge the pilot. That's why the nurse doesn't challenge the cardiothoracic surgeon. That's why the overhead crane operator does not challenge the foreman on the shop floor. And and so unless there's a way to equalize this and remove at least most of the threat of punishment, adverse consequences, then we don't do it. Right. Right. And, and what you're pointing out there, I think, is how it's so situational. And I think it's interesting to see when you work in different cultures, different organizations, different environments, or even bouncing between teams. None of us, I, I well, it's quite often that we we feel a different sense of psychological safety in those different teams, even though we're the same person bringing our own history and experiences or personality into a situation where, you know, to, to deeper, to not make it about me. I think of people I've worked with in professional settings where they were just, just beaten down over decades, you know, conditions, just keep your head down. Don't speak up. Don't be a troublemaker. 
you may say, well, that person's not brave. But how much do you bet a lot of these people with their family, if they're coaching a team at their church, wherever, they're probably asking questions and challenging the status quo and in that 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 different environment is allowing them maybe to be themselves yeah. in a way that their workplace sadly is not. Isn't that true? So you 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 just raised a, an amazing point, Mark, which is we traverse across often many different microcultures in life. We get up in the morning, uh, we're at home. Uh, what's that like? And then maybe we go to the gym and then maybe we go to work and then maybe, maybe we, maybe we, uh, go to the book club and maybe, maybe it's, uh, the food truck around the corner and then maybe it's who knows. And then maybe we coach a, a little league team after that. And each one is a different, as you say, it's a different culture has a different level of psychological safety. And what if work is an oppressive environment? That that does beat you down, and I, I I find it interesting the language that you just used because this is so often been used where don't don't cause trouble. Well, hang on a second. Let, let let's break this down. <laughs> sure. We only do two things in organizations. We do we do execution and we do innovation. And execution means delivering value today, and, and innovation means delivering value tomorrow. Execution is about the reduction of variance. Innovation is about the introduction of variance. Innovation requires divergent, nonlinear thinking. It requires constructive dissent. So when someone says, don't cause trouble. What are you talking about? Right. We we are trying to deliver value today and figure out how to deliver value tomorrow. We need divergent thinking. We need constructive dissent. So this just flies in the face of what it requires to build up the adaptive capacity of an organization. But you're absolutely right, Mark. For for some people, perhaps many people, it's been it's been wrung out of them. Yeah, they they, yeah. they don't do it. They don't even they don't even uh, they don't challenge the status quo. They they're that it's been made very clear to them that you know that's not welcome behavior, and yet we need it in every organization. That's that yeah. is so paradoxical, right? And I, I'm sure you could look at a history of how many different tech companies that had some great innovation and they were growing and they had an innovative phase and then they level out and they fossilize and then they end up right. dying. Yeah. How much of that is, I mean, it could be due to technology changes or what have you, but how much of that is due to that culture creeping in now of, of leader behaviors that stifle innovation and then maybe they start yelling and screaming and demanding more innovation. <laughs> like, well, no, it doesn't. That doesn't. That's put really true. On track, right? Yeah, it's really true. I did. I did a, a Harvard Business Review article. I don't know a few months ago on the innovative side and the connection between psychological safety and innovation. And the central finding 
that I put in the article is this, the quality of interaction regulates the speed of discovery. So how, how are we interacting? Can we interact with vulnerability? Can we act with candor? Can we interact with uh, challenging each other? If we can, that quality will, will regulate the speed of our discovery. But if we can't do that, then we limit ourselves. We, we block our, our, our own progress. And that's what it comes down to. Mm-hmm. People have enormous uh, abilities to, to innovate, to be creative, to uh, make improvements. But a lot of times um, they, they, they get shut down. Yeah. Well, I hope, you know, between what you're teaching and sharing in different ways, that inspires some people to rethink some things. You know, maybe there'll be a discussion where a leader says, hey, I was making that mistake of punishing people for speaking up. And as, you know, as you shared a little bit with your story, Tim, maybe they they start challenging things and taking on some new um, new practices the way you did. So I think what you're sharing, I I I know it's 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 opening some people's eyes and inspiring them to to move in that direction of um, as as you say you know both modeling and rewarding vulnerable acts. I appreciate what you're doing to to help teach and and share and inspire people on that. Well, thank you. Yeah, I think if you if you think about what courageous leadership really means, to be courageous is to invite the challenging behavior, to invite the dissent. Mm. Mm. Right to give people right. a license to disagree and say we really need you to lose the, use that license. That may be the supreme test of a leader to be able to receive all of that and appreciate all of that and uh, process all of that and really unleash the power of the team yeah. that yeah. way. Yeah, yeah, I love not just as 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 you say. Um, not just tolerating dissent, but encouraging it. There's yeah. a big difference there. Big difference. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Well, today, again, we've been joined uh, by Tim Clark. Uh, his company is Leader Factor. The book, again, is The Four Stages of Psychological Safety. And, and maybe one, one question here um, to, to wrap up. You know, in that four stages framework, you know, fourth stage, challenger safety, as you described, that's the innovation zone. There are different things we need to do to get there. So on the theme of this podcast, when I ask you about just one of, you know, why, why is that safety to be able to admit mistakes and to learn from them? Why, why is that so important if innovation is going to thrive? Well, if we go back, Mark, psychological safety is a function of respect and permission. So if you share your mistakes, if you publicly acknowledge what maybe you don't understand or where you need help or you ask for help. If, if you are publicly engaging in acts of vulnerability, what are you doing? You're giving others permission to do the same. So that's the second, that's the second requirement for psychological safety. Number one, respect. Number two, permission. Through your own vulnerability, you give others permission, and then they are much more likely to engage in those acts of vulnerability themselves. Yeah. Yeah. 
Very well said. So, Tim, thank you so much. It's been a real honor and a treat to have you here on the podcast. Really appreciate you taking the time and sharing so much with us today. Oh, thanks. It's been a privilege, Mark. Thanks so much. Thank you. Well, again, thanks so much to Tim for being a guest here today. To learn more about him, his amazing book, his company, and more, look for links in the show notes or go to markgraben.com slash mistake217. As always, I want to thank you for listening. I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes, how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work. And they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.